I would love to have you all take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28 this morning. Let's turn there. One of the big news stories this week has been the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And one of the things I noticed in all of that was a lot of attention being paid to her, her last words, uh, which is a major focus right now in the news. It caused me to think about the importance of last words. When people do die, we, we care about what their last words are, don't we? Well, we find it fascinating, perhaps, to know what various celebrities and public figures said in their last words. Um, for people that we are related to, we find it incredibly valuable. Because last words tell you what was truly important to a person. And of course, last words aren't just simply something saved for deathbed scenarios. Last words are often spoken when someone is going off to war or something like that. I, I think of a movie, a Mel Gibson uh, Vietnam movie, We Were Soldiers. And honestly, I don't remember hardly anything from that movie except for there's a scene in there where he is the commander, has his whole battalion there at the, the stadium. They're sitting down. He has their families, and he gives this final speech before they go to war. And it's memorable, and it's impactful. It's, it's last words. I think about this myself when I travel overseas. Oftentimes, I sit Jilly down, and you know, I assume I'm coming home, but I always want to tell her, here's what's really important. You know, Listen to me. The passage we come to today our last words as well. They're the last words that Jesus spoke during his time on earth. So we come to Matthew 28. Jesus had been uh, in his earthly ministry. He had been crucified on a cross by the Romans. Uh, He was buried and rose again. And then he spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them and showing them how he was the fulfillment of Scripture, revealing himself to them. I'd love to know more of what he said during those 40 days, but Matthew 28 brings us to the, the final part of that. As he gives a farewell and he ascends to heaven, and these are the final words that he speaks to his disciples. And as we might imagine, his last words, they are important. So before we read this, I want to pray, and let's ask God for his help, okay? Let's go ahead and pray. God, we thank you this morning that we can gather together as a church family. I thank you for each person who is here today, Uh, some who are are new and maybe here for the first time, and I'm just thankful. I'm thankful that you have brought this crowd together. I thank you that we have been able to worship you and lift our voices to you, God. God, you are worthy of worship, and you are truly glorious, and it is right for us to worship you. And I'm thankful for this time that we can open your word, God, because as strong as you are, as powerful as you are, you are the Holy One. There is no one like you. At the same time, you are the God who comes near to us, and you are the God who speaks. And you have spoken through your word. So as we open it up, God, we are eagerly anticipating hearing from you. And as we do so, Lord, we ask for your help to give us ears that hear. Give us hearts that are soft enough to make changes, cause us to to be in a position of submitting to you. And God, we don't try to do this in our, our own strength, but God, we need your strength in it. So Lord, as we come to this time, we do ask for your help. We pray this in the name of Jesus and through your spirit. Amen. Amen. 
All right, well, I would love to read Matthew 28, and you can follow along with me. As I said, Jesus is now ready to ascend to heaven. He's given his final declaration to his disciples, and he says this. This is what happens. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is a passage that we would call the Great Commission. And as we form the foundation here, we're getting ready to jump into a new sermon series next week. We wanted to spend two weeks building a strong foundation for that. And so last week we looked at that great command to love God with, with your whole heart and strength and mind. And now we come to this, the Great Commission. And as I said, last words, important words. And we want to look at this. Now, last week, not last week, but three weeks ago, one of our global partners opened up this passage with us. And I think it raises a lot of questions when we hear these words of Jesus. What's the priority of this command in light of all the other commands? Who is this for? Was it just for those 11? Was it for the, just the early church? Is it for us? What exactly does it mean? And what I, my goal is today is to answer those questions, but not in a traditional way of like breaking down this passage word by word. Oftentimes when people open up this passage, they might talk about the verb tense of all the words and, and such things, and that's a good thing to do. But my goal today is to give us a broad biblical overview to understand what is, what is the thrust behind this passage, behind this command. So we're going to take a look through a lot of scripture today, and I have two goals do you see there on your study sheet? To really grasp the purpose and scope of this command, here's my two goals. One, we need to understand God's heart for the nations. And two, we need to understand the purpose behind God's blessing. Now listen, that's my goal for us today. If you walk out of here understanding God's heart for the nations and understand why God blesses you, my job has been done today, okay? So if you have clarity here, I think all the other questions about the Great Commission get answered. So we're going to spend our time looking at that. So let's start with this. Let's start with a focus on God's heart for the nations. And, and I hope you see, as I read this passage, there is a global view in mind here. There is there's something about the nations in here. After all, what's the command? Go make disciples? Is, is it stop right there? Well, no, there's a second part to it. Make disciples of who? All nations. In fact, if, if you're having trouble remembering, just look over there. We have our, our boards on the wall that has this commission on it. Notice the third board is important. We left it hanging on the wall today. All the nations, all the nations. So there's, there's a global view, and we want to understand God's heart for the nations. To do that, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis 12. Let's go to Genesis 12. And this is really the, the foundation of God's redemptive plan. Now, give us a little bit of background on Genesis, the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters serve as a bit of a prelude. Uh, they set the scene, so to speak. Here is what God started to do. He created everything. He created us. It talks about why God created us. It talks about the fall and, and sin and how it came into the world. It talks about a promise that God makes to send a redeemer. And then it also shows how we as people are unable to really help ourselves. We keep 
Left to our own, we move further and further from God. And this accumulates in the, the flood. And all of this sets the, the, the stage for Genesis 12 as God now comes and says, so here's my plan. Here's how I'm going to save you. Here's how I'm going to redeem you. You can't do it yourself. God's, God's here. And he's going to work through this man here named Abram. Later, he will be renamed Abraham. But God comes and he's going to work his salvation plan through Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right there, right away in this foundational text, I want you to see the initiation of God's plan has a global focus. Through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And and what's in mind here isn't just nuclear families. God's not just talking about family units. He's talking about nations. In the structure of Genesis, in chapter 10, we get this table of nations, all the nations that exist who descended from Noah. In Genesis 11, we get uh, the story of Babel as people come together and try to kind of be their own God. God brings languages and he brings division and he, he separates them out and makes unique nations. And it's these people God has in mind. So when he comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you and through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It's these people that he has in mind, all the nations. And this isn't just a passing comment like, oh, did you notice that was in there? This is a major Thing. This, is, this is the thrust of God's promise. How do we know this? Well, usually you know something's important when it gets repeated a lot. If you're a parent, you would probably agree to that, right? The things you repeat a lot are the important things, hopefully. And God repeats this a lot. Notice what he does. He already has given this promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. Well, then Genesis 18, God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And notice he's visiting with Abraham. Notice what he says. It says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. See that right there? Global focus. All the nations are going to be blessed through you. He repeats this promise again in Genesis 22 after Abraham has passed the test told to sacrifice his son, and he he obeys, and God intervenes at the last minute and provides a substitute for Isaac. Notice what God says. He comes to Abraham, verse 16 of Genesis 22. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And it's not just to Abraham that this promise to bless all the nations comes. He speaks the same blessing to Abraham's son, Isaac. Genesis 26, 2. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. And I will be with you and will bless you. For you and your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. 
I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And again, he speaks it to Isaac's son, Jacob. When Jacob is dreaming that scene we have, Jacob's ladder and seeing angels descending and ascending on the stairs, this is what happens. This is what God speaks to him in his dream in Genesis 28, verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I hope you see this theme of blessing the nations as a consistent theme. It's an important theme because God keeps repeating it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this is why I'm blessing you, to bless the nations of the earth. So when we think about this, we see this as a consistent theme. One of the things I want us to see, it's not just consistent in Genesis, This is a consistent theme throughout Scripture so that when we get to Matthew 28 and Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, this isn't like an afterthought. This isn't like, oh, I have a bright idea. It's been all about Jewish people this whole time, and now I think I'll include some other people in this. Uh, This isn't a new plan. This has been the plan from the very beginning. God has a heart for the nations. I give you several verses here. To kind of see some of this, after all, the the Israelites, why were they made a nation? Well, they were made a nation to be a holy nation. They were made a nation to be a light to all the other nations so that they would say, this is the true God and this is how you worship him. Indeed, even in the formation of Israel, when God brings the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, we start to see this element of, of their design right away, of their purpose. In Exodus 12, as they come out of slavery... Are they the only people to leave Egypt? Well, they're not. Exodus 12 talks about a mixed multitude going with them. The mixed multitude is non-Jewish people who are saying, I just see what God did with all these plagues, and he's the real God, and, and I'm with these people. I'm going with them. An entire mixed multitude goes. In Exodus chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law, who's not a Jewish man, he's a holy man, but he comes to Moses and says, now I know that your God is, is the true God. I'm going to follow him. And they indeed are, are doing this. And, and in fact, as we have the law given to them, and the law has so much in it about the exile and about the foreigner, and as they are brought into the Holy Land, the kingdom is established, and eventually we get to Solomon and the temple is built, and you think, hmm, What is the purpose of the Jewish temple? Is it for the Jewish people? Well, in part, yes. But it has a broader purpose than this. Remember, they're there to bless the nations, to be a blessing to all the nations. And we see this. 1 Kings chapter 8. I want to read to you part of Solomon's prayer. Solomon has this prayer of dedication, this grand event. He's dedicating this amazing temple that's just been built. And listen to what he asks God. He's speaking to God, and this is his request he makes of God. He says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, When he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. 
as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. You see what, what Solomon is asking God? Saying, God, when a foreigner comes from another nation, listen to their prayer, answer their prayer, so that all the nations of the earth would know that you are the true God. The temple in Israel had a global purpose. And indeed, as we look at Israel's history and they have times of failure and, and God sends prophets to correct them, they go into exile. God sends prophets to say, hey, God's not done with you. He's going to restore you. Do you know so much of the prophets not only says, I'm going to judge Israel and then restore Israel. The, the prophets also speak a lot about, and I'm going to judge other nations and I'm going to restore other nations. In fact, part of the restoration of Israel was that so the other nations would then flock to Israel and worship God in a true way. In Isaiah 56, Isaiah is speaking about the purpose of the temple is still for the nations. Isaiah 56, 6 through 7, the prophet Isaiah says this. He says, and the foreigners who will join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant... These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The very purpose of the temple was that the nations would come and have a place to properly worship God. That even a foreigner bringing a sacrifice, their sacrifice would be acceptable on God's altar. A house of prayer for all peoples. This, in fact, is the text that Jesus quotes when he's clearing the temple in Mark 11. Remember that scene? Uh, Jesus goes to the temple, something sets him off, and he, he makes this whip, cord of whip, this whip of cords, and he starts turning over tables. It's quite a scene. And what does Jesus say? He says, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer? The rest is implied. A house of prayer for who? For all peoples, for the nations. You see, in the temple, there were several courts for different people. There was a court for the Jewish men, where they could go and do their thing. There was a court for the Jewish women, where they could go and worship God. And then there was a court for the Gentiles. Guess where they set up the marketplace? The court of the Gentiles. They took the very place that God had given the Gentiles to come and worship him, the nations to come and worship and they took it away, and what made Jesus so passionate was he was passionate for the worship of God from the nations, and it was unacceptable that they would take up the court of the Gentiles and turn it into a marketplace. I put on your study sheet, I'm not going to read it, Luke 24 and Acts 1. Luke's gospel gives us another view of this great commission, and again, the, the preaching of the gospel to all nations is at the center of Jesus' message to his disciples. Acts 1, 6-8 speaks of the fact that they were going to be witnesses, the church, they were going to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And sure enough, Acts, the story of Acts, details how the church grows from this small Jewish sect to this multi-ethnic global movement that we have today. It's not a surprise then that Peter, his first time he preaches the gospel in Acts, what language does he preach the gospel in? He preaches it in all languages. Because the Holy Spirit working through him gives him this gift of tongues and everybody's hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language. It says there are men from every nation present. 
God's heart is for the nations. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that when we turn to the very end of the Bible, then in Revelation, we see the, the end of all history. Who would we expect to see in God's presence? Well, Revelation 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 7 gives us a view of God's heavenly throne room, but this isn't the end of history. History ends with a new earth, and God comes down and dwells on a new earth in this new creation. We looked at the new Jerusalem last week in Revelation 21. Let me read this. So let Revelation 21, verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Do you see that? In the very end of history, who is present? It's the nations. God brings the nations into his holy city. Revelation 22 speaks of the tree of life and the leaves on the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. God has a heart for the nations. I hope you see this. I hope you see this isn't just a side thought, uh, an afterthought, a, hey, here's a stretch goal for you. Once you get done discipling some people, if you have time to disciple, the nations do that too. No, this is central to God's heart. And the question we have then is why? Why is God's heart for the nations? Why does God have a heart for the nations? Well, part of it is that God loves people, right? John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. But to really understand why God has a heart for the nations, we have to understand that his reason isn't human-centric, it's God-centric. That God's heart for the nations tied directly to the great command and God's glory to, to love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might. You see, the God who commands worship of God really values worship, right? He was the one who gave the command. He said, worship me, God wants to be worshiped. In fact, he created us for his glory. Did you know that? Isaiah 43 says that you were created for God's glory. If you ever sit here and wonder, why am I on this earth? What, 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 why, why did God put me on this earth? God put you on this earth for his glory. Absolutely. And here's what I believe, that then when we look at the nations, I believe that God gave every nation unique glory. God gave every nation unique glory in order to reflect glory back to God in worship. Let me put it this way. When I travel overseas, like when I go to Kenya, can I tell you that my Kenyan brothers and sisters worship God in a way that I can't? They have rhythm that I don't have. God has given them a unique glory to glorify him. And you might wonder whose worship is better, our worship or Kenya's worship? Whose worship will we see in the kingdom? Our worship or Kenya's worship? The answer is both, I think. And here's the thing. I think when we think about us as finite human beings worshiping the infinite God, no one worship style accurately reflects the glory of God. But a kaleidoscope of beautiful and colorful and diverse worship more accurately reflects and glorifies God. And I think that's why God did it. What are the kings of the earth bringing into the kingdom in Revelation 21? They're bringing the glory of the nations, right? Are they bringing the glory of the nations to say, look at me, look how good we are. 
No, they're bringing the glory of the nation saying, look how great God is. This is why God created the nations. This is why God has a heart for the nations. I was thinking about this uh, number, a couple of years ago, I was on Facebook and a friend of mine who loved, they love Disneyland, they love puzzles. They were making a puzzle and they had a catastrophe. Put a picture there, one piece was missing. So this is terrible. We have a missing puzzle piece. And I mean, people were on Facebook and they're like, we're praying for you. Uh, we hope you find it. And then sure enough, like three weeks later, they find this missing piece and people are like, praise God. They're hitting the like button like there's no tomorrow. And, but it made me think, if I were to give you a gift, a puzzle as a gift, and then no matter how beautiful that puzzle was, no matter how many pieces it had, if I gave you a puzzle as a gift and I knew there was a piece missing, is that a good gift or a bad gift? It's a terrible gift, right? It's like, I'm going to put you through the worst anguish imaginable. And it made me think about this. If God made every nation for his glory, gave every nation unique glory in order to glorify him, if we end up in God's kingdom and one nation is missing, is that good worship or bad worship? And I would say it's bad worship because it's incomplete and our God deserves complete, perfect worship. What this tells me then is it doesn't matter. God's heart for the nations isn't human-centric. It's God-centric. And, and then this has the implication then that it doesn't matter how big a people group is or how small they are, how important by our standards are or unimportant they are, how lovable they are or how difficult to like they are. The importance of them knowing the gospel has everything to do with God, not them. It's God-centered. And here's the thing. When we talk about God creating us for his glory and God wanting to be worshipped, sometimes the thing that comes up, and we might wonder, is, is that good for God to desire worship? Like, we might get this picture in our head. Is God like this needy, like, pathetic person who needs people to give him compliments? And I'd say that's a really bad way to view God. Now, many people have written about this, and I've, I've spoken about this in more detail. I'm not going to speak about it in a lot of detail, but let me give you a couple reasons why God commanding us to worship him is actually a good thing. First of all, the reality is that you are a worshiper. You will worship something. And you will either worship something that's not lasting, something that's temporary, something that's hollow, something that's ultimately destructive to you. Or you will worship the true and living God, the only thing worthy of worship. When God calls us to worship him, he's, he's doing something very kind to us because he's calling us to worship the one thing worthy of worship. See, God is not a needy person like we are. He is God. He is unique. He's not like us. Second, God's call to worship leads us to our greatest satisfaction. I mean, it just makes sense from the standpoint of if God created us for his glory, then wouldn't it make sense that the thing that would be most satisfying to us would be doing the thing that we were created to do? And here's the thing, the kind of worship God wants isn't worship that comes from a reluctant heart. It's worship that comes from a heart overflowing with adoration and thankfulness. 
So God, the worship of God is not at odds with my happiness. This is the problem with sin. Sin convinces us that God is holding out from us and and that we can find greater happiness somewhere apart from God. And a lot of people convince themselves of this. I'm going to follow my own way. I'm going to find greater happiness. And, And friends, let me tell you, it leads to destruction. It does. Leads to anguish and heartache and despair. So God is kind to say, worship me, because he knows it leads to our greatest satisfaction. And here's something that I just started thinking about the other day. I was in a conversation completely unrelated to this, but we were reflecting on the fact that Jesus is a worshiper. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, worshiped God the Father. And, and you know, when Jesus did that, he was being true to his nature. Jesus wasn't worshiping God as like just an act, like, hey, I'm going to show him how to worship. No, he was worshiping God truly. And it caused me to realize that God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, within God there is already true community and true enjoyment of each other. There's true adoration of each other. There's true glorifying of each other. Within God, the triune God, there is worship. It's kind of weird to hear that. But Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is worship within God. And when God calls us, when God's call leads us to join him, He's calling us to join him in his greatest activity, and that is the enjoyment and worship of himself. See, God's call to worship isn't like some singular lonely person standing on a throne saying, hey, I need you all to come like, say nice things about me. It's someone who's already experiencing perfect community and perfect worship and perfect adoration saying, I want to share this with other people and I want you to come into community with me. This is a call to worship comes from a good and a kind God. So let's end it there, at least with the nations. God has a heart for the nations. And the heart for the nations starts with God's desire to be glorified. Pastor Jay read a quote from John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, last week. Worship, or missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is temporary, Worship is permanent. The very thing that drives missions is worship. Okay, so God has a heart for nations. Are you convinced yet? I hope you are. God has a heart for nations. Okay, I want us to look at God's purpose and blessing, okay? So why was Abraham blessed? Uh, Look at Genesis chapter 12 again. Why was Abraham blessed? Verse 2 gives us the answer, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And there's a so that. So that you will be a blessing. Sometimes we misunderstand why God chooses people, and we think that there's some divine act of favoritism going on. Like, oh, I I don't really like those people over there, but I really like Abraham, so I'm going to take their stuff and give it to Abraham, and, and they can suffer, and I'm just, Abraham will be happy. And is that why God blesses Abraham? It's not. God's blessing is never a divine act of favoritism at the expense of others. God's purpose in blessing Abraham was that so Abraham would be a blessing to others. He says there right in verse 2, so that you will be a blessing. And then we get this fleshed out a little bit in verse 3. You're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God made Abraham's name great. Why? Was it for Abraham's sake? No, it was to make God's name great. And here's the thing. Oftentimes we want God's blessing, but we forget the purpose behind God's blessing. 
And you can't separate the, the blessing of God from the purpose of God's blessing. Now, earlier, Pastor Ben read Psalm 67 to you. And right there in that psalm, we see the purpose of God's blessing connected right with the blessing. Now, read verse 1 and 2 to you again, okay? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Is that the end? Is there a period there? No, there's a comma there. The next word in verse 2 is that. It's a so that. This is why you're being blessed. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. The purpose of God's blessing is to bless others. The purpose of God's blessing is global in nature. It has nations at its heart. And we might look at that and say, hmm, okay, but that was, you know, in the Old Testament, and that was a promise made to Abraham. Does this really apply to me? And the answer is yes. Because here's what I believe. That this, if you're part of the family of faith, you have inherited Abraham's blessing. And therefore, you have inherited the purpose behind Abraham's blessing. Paul argues this in Galatians. Galatians 3, 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That means if you are trusting Christ, guess what? You're a son of Abraham. Verse 8, And scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. You hear what Paul's saying there? Genesis 12 was the first time God preached the gospel by saying, in you, Abraham, all the nations are going to be blessed. He's going to bless the nations through faith. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you are in the faith, you have inherited Abraham's blessing. Guess what that means? You've inherited the purpose behind Abraham's blessing. Okay, I want us to have crystal clarity about this today, all right? And it's going to be summed up in one simple phrase. I am blessed to be a blessing. I am blessed to be a blessing. I want you to remember that. Don't forget that. You can forget everything else today, but don't forget that. Help you with that. I want you to say that with me, okay? We're going to, we're going to cement that into our brains, all right? Say it with me. I am blessed to be a blessing. Wonderful. Okay, so there you go. We have the understanding of God's heart for the nations. We have an understanding of why God blesses us. Let's, let's wrap this up and, and talk about this, the Matthew 28, a little bit more, okay? I'm going to pack a bit of a global vision here. Matthew 28 speaks of all nations, but who are the nations? What is a nation? Different people have different opinions, and I think it's best to think of the nations as ethnic people groups rather than geopolitical borders. I'll give you a little example of what I mean by this. Here is a picture on the screen there of Nigeria, the country of Nigeria and its borders. Okay, we say, you know what, we need to listen to this great commission. We need to send missionaries so that they would have uh, the gospel. So we send a missionary to Nigeria. And they start a church, and the church takes off, and it's a, it's a healthy, thriving church that's sharing the gospel. Is Nigeria reached? Well, I would say not yet. Because you see here, this is a very simplified view of Nigeria. It makes it look like a singular country, a singular nation. But what's the reality is Nigeria is actually a nation of nations. 
You see, this is a map of all the different people groups in Nigeria. Each of these people groups has a distinct language and culture and history. And what happens is if you start a church among one and it saturates that entire people group, guess what? Typically, it doesn't naturally overflow to the next people group because each of these groups needs a unique, dedicated missionary effort that says, how do I communicate the gospel to these people? How do I speak in a way that they understand? How do I speak their language and understand their culture? And so these, I would say, are the nations that Jesus has in mind. After all, what do we see in Revelation 7, 9? Every tongue, tribe, nation... These are all different languages, and I believe that God has given each of them unique glory to glorify him. So that's what I think we have in mind here. The Great Commission, go make disciples of all the nations. Now, I want us to see this as well. The Great Commission is necessarily cross-cultural, because if we really understand God's heart for the nations, then there needs to be some sort of global element to our faith. Now, when we think about the Great Commission, when you think about evangelism and discipleship within your own culture, within, say, let's say, University Place in Tacoma, is that the Great Commission? Well, it's part of it. But if all I ever did was do evangelism, discipleship in my city, and I never thought about the rest of the world, is that the Great Commission? And I'd say no. I think there's necessarily a cross-cultural element to the Great Commission. And this is good news for us because sitting in this room... I think there's very few people who are Jewish. Most of us are Gentiles. We are the nations. We are the product of somebody saying, I'm going to be obedient to this commission. I'm going to be obedient. I think that's a a wonderful thing. Now, please understand this then. As we think about cross-cultural ministry and we think about people groups like this, Uh, people who are in the missions world speak about people groups in technical ways. They often talk about reached and unreached. Let me me break that down really briefly for you. When missiologists say a people group is reached, they're not saying there's no more work to do. They're not saying everybody is saved. They would say that the United States is reached. Are there people who need Jesus here? Absolutely, right? But what they're saying is we no longer necessarily need an outside missionary effort for the gospel to be heard within our culture. That the church here is strong enough that we can participate in the Great Commission ourselves, and we can make the gospel known within our own culture and to other cultures. When they say our culture is unreached, what they're saying is that there is still the need for an external missionary force to bring the gospel. Otherwise, without missionaries, the gospel will never be heard. When we look at a map like this of people groups today, there are an estimated 7,407 unreached people groups. Now, that doesn't mean they're unengaged. Many of those have missionaries. And that can sound like a really, really big number, but you know what? If you looked at just Southern Baptist churches, which is one of the bigger denominations in the States, there's 60,000 of them in the United States. Just among the Southern Baptists, they could dedicate 10 churches to every single people group in the world. In the United States today, there's about three to 400,000 churches. We could dedicate 60 churches just from the United States to every unreached people group in the world. This is a very doable thing. But how do we develop a passion for this? How, how do we develop a passion for the nations? Sometimes people try to use guilt. They'll show you pictures of 
poor people, needy people, people who have not heard the gospel, and they'll try to generate feelings of guilt for those people. Other times, people will try to generate warm, fuzzy feelings, and they'll show you all the cool things about their culture and all the beautiful things. Is that how we generate a passion for the nations? And I'd say, no, neither of those will sustain you when it comes to reaching the unreached. Passion for a nation starts with a passion for God. It has to start with me saying, you know what? I want God to receive proper worship that's fitting for him. For me to fulfill the great commission begins with the great command. That's why we did the great command last week. Because the great commission necessarily flows out of the great command. We have to remember, God created people, every nation for his glory, and we want God to receive the glory. Now, let's, let's just move to this responding to God's word section. A few comments before we end today. I want to bring things down a little bit more personal for you. I want us to think about what is a disciple. We talk about discipleship a lot in the church. We talk about being a disciple a lot. A lot of definitions out there about what is a disciple. And, and let me give you just a very, very simple definition, okay? A disciple is basically someone who follows the master and does what a master does. If you're going to say, I'm someone's disciple, you follow them, you do what they do. That's kind of a given, right? In church, sometimes when we think about being a disciple of Jesus, I think we take some of the, the results of discipleship and we think that's the goal of discipleship. For instance, we say, you know, discipleship means I read the Bible more, I pray more, I go to church more. I clean up a few bad habits, and generally I try to be a nicer, more likable person. Are those good things? Yeah, those are all good things. Those are all good products of discipleship, but that's, that doesn't make you a disciple. I can read my Bible, I can pray, I can go to church, I can, I can clean up some habits, I can be a nicer person. Doesn't mean I'm following the master. Doesn't mean I'm doing what the master does. Because you see, the master said, go make disciples of all nations. The master's heart is for the nations. Jesus is actively building his church among the nations. And I would say this. I think that a global component is a necessary component to discipleship. If God's heart is so clearly for the nations throughout all scripture, and if Jesus' final words, his final command was, go make disciples of all nations, then for me to really say I'm his disciple, I think requires that global element. And I just want to challenge you with that this morning. Now, I'll say this as well. The Great Commission is not a deluxe version of Christianity. It's not like, yeah, a few like really serious people can be concerned about the nations and this. No, this is all of our, this is for all of us. This is basic Christianity. We're all called to be involved. Now, we're not all called to go. After all, the simple economics of it say very few will go because it takes a lot of people sending to send people to go to these difficult places in the world. But the reality is we're all called to be a part of this in some way. And if you are blessed to be a blessing, then my question is, what has God given you? And what can you use for God's kingdom growth? That might be how you use your resources. Did you know in America, not just not in this church, but in just the general American church, for every dollar given to ministry, less than one penny goes to frontier missions to take the gospel to where it's never been heard before? Do you know that of every 10 missionaries sent, only one missionary today gets sent to unreached areas? Nine out of 10 missionaries go to reached areas. 
And I mean, there's still work to do there, but when we think about what our mission is, we have to think, are we taking this seriously? Are we using our resources in a serious way? When I, when I pray, do I pray in a serious way? When I think about our missionaries, our global partners that we have at Sunset Bible Church, are there ways that I can support them emotionally? Are there ways I can support them practically with needs that they have? You know, in your bulletin, you might notice we always have a section in here, global outreach, that speaks about our global partners. You're wondering, how do I start to have a global element to my discipleship? Pray for these people. That's why we put them in there. But I want to challenge you today. What has God given you to bless the world? Maybe it's welcoming people who are coming here. You know, we have immigrants and refugees in the United States that are coming from places that are very hard to go as a missionary today. In our own English as a Second Language program here at this church, which you can be involved in, by the way, we have people from closed countries, from Iran and Yemen and various places, where it's very hard to go and, and preach the gospel. And yet you can share the gospel with someone from those countries right here. I want to end just with this thought. Final note on your study sheet. The Great Commission is not a thankless command, but a glorious promise. It really is God's best for you. Sometimes people say, man, this, this Great Commission, this is for people who want to just sacrifice all the fun things in life and go do like the hard, boring things and, you know, live in a hut somewhere. And it's not a thankless command. By the way, you know Jesus gave this command because he, he knew it was achievable and could be finished. Do you know the command comes with a promise? Check it out. He said, go make disciples of all nations. And then what did he say? And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. A promise. I'm not leaving you to do this on your own. I'm with you in this. Jesus is building his church. Acts 1.8 doesn't say go try to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. It says you will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Revelation, we see already God says, the faithful God who made the promise in Genesis and speaks all the way to Revelation, he said, there will be people from every nation, tongue, and tribe in my presence one day. So God's invitation to this is an invitation to participate in the greatest work, the greatest mission, the greatest story, to have the greatest dignity in joining God in his passion. God has blessed you to be a blessing. Would you stand? Let's pray. And I'd love to pray for you as we close this morning. Father, I thank you so much for this, this church. I thank you for each person here. And as I prayed before, God, we don't have the ability to drum up passion in our hearts. This is not something we do in our own strength. Even in being convinced of the priority of the Great Commission, being convinced of the priority of the nations as you have a heart for the nations, to be convinced of how I should use my life is not something that I do, but God, we need your help. We need you to convict us and do that work in us. But God, I pray that you would. I pray for each person here that they would leave today knowing that you have a heart for the nations and that they have been blessed to be a blessing. God, as they go about their week, I pray that you would give them eyes that are open to see the opportunities around them and the interactions they have with people, whether they're, they're fellow Americans or people from other countries. God, I pray that you would be with them and give them wisdom and, and uh, 
strength as they, they speak to people, winsomeness. God, that the words that they speak would not be words of our own doing, but words that come from you. God, help us to love others the way that you love others. Help us to bless others the way you have blessed us. And so, God, I lift up this congregation to you today. Wherever they find themselves going, would you have your hand on them? Would you walk with them? We pray this in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen.